This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. I'm going to generalize here. Bear with me. I bet, for many listeners, schooling is understood as an institution that instills in children a type of practical knowledge that hopefully makes them future productive citizens in society. Education through schooling is the answer to many of our social problems today. Its very purpose is to improve society. But where did these ideas come from? Why do many people think schooling is to improve society? What knowledge and systems of reason govern this type of thinking about education? My guest today, Professor Tom Popkovitz, dives deep into these questions. Tom Popkovitz is a professor in the School of Education at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. My reading of the Enlightenment is not to say it's an evolution to the present, but a way to understand how a particular kind of way of thinking that we use to try to correct social wrongs, in a way, begin to reinscribe those social norms and differences and work against our social commitments. Am I being too theoretical? (laughs) Get ready. My conversation with Tom covers a lot of ground, touching on the notion of cosmopolitanism, connecting the Enlightenments in the 18th and 19th centuries to the 20th century progressive education era in America, and finally, to contemporary teacher education and the rise of PISA. He challenges us to think about what it means to compare in educational sciences today. Where did such comparative thinking come from, and how does it primarily work? Tom Popkovitz, welcome to Fresh Ed. Well, thank you, and it's good to be with you. So education as a field of study has historically been about instilling uh, in children a type of practical knowledge that would make them productive citizens in society in some distant future. And this is very commonplace, uh, particularly in Western um, thinking. Where did these ideas come from? It's a confluence of many, many things, okay? Um, I, previous to the book I'm working on uh, is um, a book on cosmopolitanism. And how did I get it started in that? I was sitting in a library in Helsinki and reading a sociology journal about the new millennium. And they were talking about the cosmopolitanism of the new millennium. And in reading that, I realized that the way in which they talked about cosmopolitanism was the way in which school is framed, even though they never used the word, especially in American history and also in the European histories I've read. And it's in this exploration of the cosmopolitanism that I begin, I began to understand better how this idea of a particular kind of knowledge begins to emerge that makes it possible to think, but also to do things that uh, to change everyday life. So it's not only schools, but it's other things. And the modern school is an invention that draws upon these ideas of the Enlightenment and its notion of cosmopolitanism. So it emerges, I say it emerges, it emerges in there, but it also, you can find the whole notion of human agency in the, in, um, in the Renaissance, the idea of humanism and so on. And so you begin to see this idea, you see it in Kant, for example, you see it earlier in Descartes, 
that somehow you can have access to phenomena through the mind and somehow change that phenomena in some way which allows the invention of the idea of progress, for example. And so the question is, how does this come about? It comes about through many different things, but at the turn of the 19th century, 20th century, you begin to see the development and institutionalization of social science. The social sciences become part of the educational project. It becomes part of what's called the modern school, whether you call it the new educational fellowship, which was not in the US, or whether you call it progressive education. It's part of this way of thinking about how you take science to develop particular kinds of people. Now, it's also interesting that the idea of the cosmopolitanism was not an idea of democracy. It was a very elite idea. And, but it was brought and it had nothing, and it also was to undo the nationalism. What happens in that, though, is the, the Enlightenment idea of the cosmopolitan gets brought into the modern school through and related to the idea of a certain kind of knowledge that has to do with science. Was it science? That's a different question. But it was called science. That's Dewey, that's Thorndike, that's Hall, that's the European uh, Delacroix and a whole. And th that's what was brought back into China with the people who study with Dewey. All right. So you see an interesting paradox, a way of thinking about how you develop and ch change people, which relates to the cosmopolitan notion of a, a universalized humanity, gets brought into the idea of the modern republic in French, in the US, for example. The very early founders talked about the necessity of schools as a way of making kinds of people because when you have a republic, it's a different kind of person than if you're a subject of the king. And so the modern school becomes a way of trying to think about how do you change everyday life? Later on, the concept of practical knowledge appears, but not earlier. And so you have this very sort of uneven history, which focuses on how you try to intervene, not only in social conditions, but also in people and change who they are. Now, there's more to that, but I'll stop for the moment. So schools were seen as, as a way to improve society, to, to make society in a particular way. It was seen as a way, yeah, of making society in a particular way. But there's, what's interesting about that is that it wasn't all of society. Um, in the Enlightenment, these sciences were called moral sciences. And they were concerned with questions of deviancy. When you move up into the progressivism, and I'm talking about America here, but I could also talk about Europe. These sciences were also concerned with deviancy. There was something called the social question. And much of the educational thought that we have, its heritage too, if I can use that word, relates to what's called the social question. The social question was, at least in Northern Europe and North America, concerned with Protestant reformers trying to think about how you undo the moral disorder of the city, the idea of urban populations, immigrants in the US from this Southern Europe, from Eastern Europe, and also racial groups coming up after the end of American Civil War when African-Americans moved to the North. So that it was, yes, to improve society, but it focused on the notion of difference. 
people who were outside of what was, and I'm using a language of conjulum here, outside the notion of normality, that is the pathological. And so it was to improve society for those who were, were considered dangerous and dangerous to the f envisioned future. So it isn't a carte blanche notion of improvement. It was directed to very particular populations. Is that idea still prevalent today, the, the, the effort of schools to, you know, improve, quote unquote, backwards people? Do we see that today as well? Like, is this is the legacy still there? Um, a nation at risk. Which which is what Na a nation of risk is what a nation. I mean, it was a nineteen in the nineteen eighties. A report of the U.S. government talking about how the nation is endangered, and how we have to do something. So this idea of risk, this idea of danger, is very prevalent in social policy. But I mean, if you think about in the U.S. Um, or think about it in Europe. Um, this is still very much prevalent. What are the sciences? I was at a meeting at the European Educational Research Association. What was its theme? Its theme was urban education. What's urban education? It's the people who are outside of the normal. I mean, of course, the language is a very a democratic language, a benevolent language. Uh, in the current research I'm looking in this book, where they're talking about core practices, they're talking about what is the teacher to do? The teacher is supposed to be a professional who works towards the improvement of society. Who are the people who need improvement? Of course, it's again put into a very, um, yeah, it's put into an enlightenment language of uh, trying to have progress, trying equality, justice, which is today's language. It's not the language of the enlightenment. But its way of thinking about difference is usually built upon what's not there. And so you talk about the kids who don't lurk, learn. You talk about the kids who come from fragile families. You talk about community, which is this symbolic way of talking about those people who somehow are out of the ordinary, who are different. In China today, they're talking about the children left behind, the rural children. In the U.S., urban is the symbol. If you look at China or you look at um, the formation of the... Um, the Turkish Republic, it was rural. But the languages of that are used to describe and differentiate are languages about those who are outside of the normal. I, I'll give you, um, a, um, well, I gave you two concrete examples in, in both, um, in Turkey, what we'll call the um, village institutes, and also in China today, which is either the, the, what they call the floating children or they call the children left behind. But I, I wrote a book called Struggling for the Soul. It was a study of urban and rural schools in the US. And the program was a, an alternative teacher education program designed to bring teachers who had high qualifications into the schools, in schools where children didn't have those qualified teachers and were not doing, and the children were not succeeding. When I looked and, and it was an ethnography across the country. I went to, I forgot how many different schools over a year. Um, one of the things that began to emerge for me was you have a geographical difference. Urban is different than rural. When I'm driving in an ur and when I go to Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York, I take the train. 
if I want to go to the place where I went in Georgia, I had to drive because there was no train. I mean, they're geographically different. But once you get into the school, you realize there's only one language about children who are different. They lack motivation. They lack self-esteem. Um, there's an achievement gap. These are all languages about the recognition of difference. But in that recognition of difference is also the construction of divisions. And so one of the things that emerges and emerged for me out of this looking historically at the Enlightenment is to realize how a particular kind of Enlightenment thought, and I say a particular kind because it isn't the only version, is built into it a comparative mode of thinking. Earlier, that comparative mode was called the quarrel of the ancients and the moderns, where there was a big debate going on for over 100 years about whether what the Europeans had was superior to what went before and others. It also was a way of thinking about colonialization, about why the Europeans had a, a more advanced civilization. Now, what's in that is not only this sort of describing the other as, as not the same as you, but also a particular way you begin to historicize humanity which is a part of the cosmopolitanism. That is, for the first time, humans had their own history. And in that own history, you can begin to differentiate. That's what gets carried into the formation of the Republic, that kind of thought. When I say that kind of thought, there are other kinds of thought. There was a very nice book written by Stephen Tillman called Cosmopolis. And he said, look, we've been guided, I'm paraphrasing here, we've been guided all this time by... Um, Newton's notion of mechanics. And he said, look where it got us. And he said, there are other models to think about the Enlightenment than just Newton and this idea of mechanics and machines and so on. Um, and so I'm saying that because my critique, my th historical thinking about this is not to say the Enlightenment was bad. This interview is built upon Enlightenment principles, okay? But a particular doxa of the Enlightenment moves in to the present in a way that maintains this comparativeness. And in it, the distinctions that I call double gestures, that in the hope of trying to change and produce progress, you also at the same moment and simultaneously develop a way of thinking about who's not that advanced. That is who you fear, what are the dangers and dangerous populations that you not only exclude, but you also object. Okay. so. You can see that my reading of the Enlightenment is not to say it's an evolution to the present, but a way to understand how a particular kind of way of thinking that we use to try to correct social wrongs, in a way, begin to reinscribe those social norms and differences and work against our social commitments. That's the book that I'm working on, is how and why what we think is practical knowledge back to this practical knowledge, is impractical because it's built upon these assumptions of comparison. It's, comp it's built upon other kinds of things that I haven't talked about, such as stability, as a way of thinking about change. And we need to find ways of, if I use my language, to denaturalize it, to take this comment, the thing we think is so common and natural to talk about, and understand it's not natural, to understand its limits, to understand its dangers, 
as a way of thinking about what might be alternatives to this. How would you denaturalize it? How would you, I mean, you use the term cultural theses that basically shape and define the categories and perceptions um, that that we are able to have. Like, how do we denaturalize this and think of alternatives? The way I think about it is that we have particular kinds of rules and standards by which we organize things. When I say we, it's not just we, it's historically. Why is it possible I can talk to you about these things? Because there are certain kinds of historical ways of thinking and organizing and classifying things. And what I want to do is understand how those, what are the conditions that make that way of thinking possible? What are the limits of it? How does it create, for example, um, in, in the case I, in schools, comparative modes of thought when we think we're trying to include when in fact what's happening is not only inclusion but also exclusion. And that requires for me what I call historicizing the present. That is, how do you take the present? That is, how do you take, when I talked about this book, Struggling for the Soul, how do you take this idea of urban and rural schools and understand what are the conditions that made it possible to think about it and for people to think it's intelligible and plausible to talk about urban and rural? I mean, it's a really, again, this is playing with that term, but playing with it historically. When you in English, at least, when or American English, but I think also in British um, English, when you talk about urban schools, you begin to realize what's its opposite. There, we don't have a term because everybody assumes we know what the school is that's not urban, and so you begin to understand how differences become classified in a way you just assume it. And part of the problem is how you unassume it that is denaturalizing. And that means understanding historically. For example, for me, um, I was just reading something um, actually by Foucault, where he talked about, um, I think he was talking about in the early 17th century, the center of thought related on urban, and they dropped the urban. But in fact, by the 18th, 19th century, urban becomes back. And there are two kinds of urban, okay? And you, you have to guess which is the one that we talk about. There's the urban, um, which is the university, its business, its culture. You go to New York, okay, our place of almost residence, and where do you go? You go to museums, you go to shows, you listen to music. Okay, that's urban, and that's the cosmopolitan. The cosmopolitan was a very, very uh, urban person. In fact, there's a beautiful German painting which shows the cosmopolitan sitting and looking at the pastoral of Germany um, and contemplating it. And so there's a little bit of romanticism in that cosmopolitanism about how you reflect upon the beauty of nature, but also of man and women. Okay, so that's, that's the urban. But when you talk about urban schools, that's not the urban you're talking about because it's the urban of the other. Why it's a category of difference. It's a category of division. And even where we, use the category against itself, that is, how do you improve the achievement and so on, it is still a category of difference. And how do we understand that? Well, part of it is understanding historically, how did it get there? And then you begin to understand what was the Chicago sociology. They went into the um, the ghettos and they studied people, how people lived in tenements. 
They had um, they, the settlement house. What was the settlement house movement? It was understand. It was for the elite to come, the urbane, to come and look at and see how the immigrants lived. And so you realize that when urban is used, it's not a geographical concept anymore. It's a historical and cultural concept that changes, but still defines what is not there. That is what's not defined, what's not named, because you don't have to name it. Hi, Fresh Ed listeners. This is Noah Sobe. Sorry for interrupting the interesting conversation with Tom Popkowitz. You know, Tom was my doctoral dissertation advisor. Hopefully he won't mind me butting in for a moment. As many of you know, I'm the president-elect of the Comparative and International Education Society, and I have the honor of organizing next year's conference. I want to remind you that the submission deadline for next year's CIES is October 1st. That's only two weeks away. You can find all the details at CIES2017.org. Again, that's CIES2017.org. And the deadline to submit a proposal is October 1st. Hope to see many of you in Atlanta in March. And now back to Professor Popkowitz. Being in the field of comparative education, it makes me think that that field itself has to do a lot of denaturalizing, so to speak. I mean, uh, for instance, there's you know, lots of people in comparative education that work in educational development, which in many ways is the same idea of trying to aim for progress in maybe not urban communities in America, but particular communities in, in quote-unquote, developing countries. It's, it's um, I agree with you. And why do I agree with you? For a number of reasons. First of all, the whole notion of comparison needs to be theorized. What constitutes difference? Because, and very few people do that. They assume difference. And if you look epistemologically at the research, much of the research done in comparative education, it assumes an epistemological universal. Those are built into the concepts that are in social theory. And then they apply those concepts to other people to understand difference. I'll give you an example. Um, I did a, I wrote an article with someone at uh, Hong Kong University, Weili Zhao, and someone from Pakistan, um, Aisha Kiran. And the problem was, how do you understand difference without inscribing sameness as a notion of difference. And one of the things, and we tried to do that in terms of both looking at Chinese education and also looking at education in, in Pakistan versus historically the social theories that were being used in comparative education. And let me give you an example. Um, the example has to do with Pakistan. There was a rural education project. That rural edu education progress wanted to understand how women were being liberated. So, but the whole notion of liberation, the whole notion of agency, the whole notion of empowerment were very much, they were used theoretically, but those theoretical notions were very much embedded in American liberal thought about what it means to be a kind of person. They were then imp imposed on the analytical framework of this program to see whether women were being empowered and so on, without ever recognizing the way in which the epistemology itself carried with it certain kinds of historical norms that are not only norms about politics, but also very much religious themes that come out of American Calvinism. I mean, that's another element that needs to be considered. And I mean, one of the things a number of my students are working on now, but not only my students, is 
How do you understand modernization in East China, for example, or China, East Asia? By understanding the the interrelationship, not it's not borrowing, but the interrelationship between Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, and the movement of Western kinds of notions, because when they get there, they're no longer Western notions. They become assembled in something that's not just adding them. How do you develop an intellectual way of thinking about that, a theoretical way? So you're not just thinking of difference as difference from some notion of representation and identity in which you then superimpose a particular framework which denies difference itself. Am I being too theoretical? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's good, though, because it's, you know, this show has dealt a lot with um, comparative education scholars, and, and I don't think the field itself steps back and really tries to critique and understand what it is to even compare. And I think the best example, what you know, when you said that the comparison we do is always about, it, it's looking at what is normal and then finding instances where, where people don't meet that normal. And I, I just think of PISA, this international test that does this on a global scale. I mean, and it's sort of interesting because um, I've been working a lot with Europeans on PISA. It's very uh, prominent. And to understand PISA, you have to understand, first of all, what I call the alchemy of school subjects. That is, in Western models of curriculum, and particularly, and I'm talking more from the U.S. because I'm more familiar, but it, I do a lot of work with Europeans, so it's, I could see it in Portugal, I see it in France, I see it in Sweden, and so on. There's a particular way in which curriculum is formed. It's formed through psychological models. Those models have some image about who the child should be and where and how that child develops and grows. Those models become the ways in which you interpret physics, mathematics, and bring it into the school. It's sort of a magical transformation. That magical transformation has to do with you have to take things that people do in physics, mathematics, music, art, and somehow move it we have buildings on my campus that somehow has to sort of travel from those buildings into my buildings and then get translated into ways of talking to kids. Now, the alchemy has to happen in schools because kids are not mathematicians, they're not physicists. But what's interesting and important is how these models emerge. And when you look at them historically, you realize they didn't emerge to teach kids physics or mathematics. They had to do with this idea of how do you make the citizen? How do you make a moral child? And so the example I was going to, I gave was music education. Um, music education was brought into the Boston schools in the late 1800s by Horace Mann. Horace Mann was the secretary of the Massachusetts Board of Education. And for Amer many American historians think he's one of, he was instrumental in the formation of the modern school. That kind of uh, hero worship isn't what I'm getting at. Um, what was important is he went to Prussia. And he wasn't interested in certain elements, but he was interested in music education. Brought it into the schools. Why music education? Because he was interested in, with um, the Irish population in Boston. This was a, a book actually written by Ruth Gustafson, where it was her dissertation that she wrote up, where she looked at the, where did music education, why music education? Well, it was thought that if 
the Irish girls in the high school would sing and join choral groups, that would help their health because the breathing and the exercise was good for the health. Then later, they introduced music appreciation. Why music appreciation? It was music that you were supposed to be able to understand your sense of collective belonging, not to Irish, but as an American. It also frowned upon learning jazz. Why jazz? Jazz was the music of African-Americans. It isn't actually only that, but it was perceived that. And why African and Africa, and that was thought dangerous to the mind. And so it was frowned upon children learning jazz. In fact, Carl Seashore, who was at the University of Iowa, did research where he had high school, this is in the 20s, look at and listen to classical music and then listen to jazz. And he record, recorded their facial expression. And you know what? The people who listened to, and these were all white men, um, the people who listened to um, classical music had a sense of joy and satisfaction. The people who listened to jazz, this is his, his interpretation of the photographs, they tended to frown and be disoriented and um, all sorts of things that would enter into and mentally make them unstable. Okay, so why is it, why am I telling this story? Because, and I could do the same thing if you want in uh, mathematics education, I could do the same thing in art education. I could do the same thing in science education because there's a whole group of people that are working on historically where these places come from, where these disciplines come from. They are not to learn science. They're not to learn math. They're not to learn uh, art. They're to develop a particular kind of person. And usually that person is to counter what is considered moral disorders. And they're built upon psychologies. If you look at the psychologies of education, cognitive psychology, learning psychology, and so on, these are not psychologies developed to understand what physics is. Their psychologies understand how you govern who the child is and who the child becomes. So why is that important? PISA builds itself on these models and calls it learning science, practical knowledge of science, practical knowledge of mathematics, practical knowledge of literacy. It's not practical knowledge of any of that. It's how you make a particular kind of person. And then when you look more carefully at the PISA, you realize that it's not only are they talking about children learning these subject matters, that is the alchemy, um, but they're also talking about the social and cultural context that they learn. That is family backgrounds, community background. And you realize this has very little to do with learning to be a scientist, learning to be a mathematician, learning to be an artist. It has to do with a particular kind of inscription of a moral order. And so there's a real, um, and then it's given a universality through the use of numbers. There's wonderful work done by Ted Porter on, it's a book called Trust in Numbers, but even beyond that, and also people in France and so on, where they talk about how these numbers become, numbers become a way of telling the truth about people, about society, because it seemed democratic. The numbers are biased. The numbers seem to be uh, the same for everyone and so on. Yet the numbers themselves are built upon particular kind of cultural ways of thinking about people that become obscured because you begin to think of the numbers as a way of telling truth. Do you think it's it's possible to to get beyond enlightenment thinking? Because I think you've shown very clearly that the the connection 
between a particular Enlightenment thought and progressive education of the 20th century and the, the way we think about education in the 21st century share a lot of the same cultural theses. So the question is, would we be able to ever get beyond those theses? Well, you, there's two different questions you just asked. Do we get beyond the Enlightenment? And you know what? I'm, I'm very much indebted to the Enlightenment, okay? I, 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 there are probably things about, um, there are elements of the Enlightenment that I don't want to give up. The idea of reason, the idea of science. I'm not giving up science. I don't like the way in which science become provincialized, okay? So it's not, I'm not critiquing science. I'm particularly a particular brand of science that tries to universalize itself and doesn't realize its own limits. Do I think we can get beyond what we now do, which is not necessarily beyond the Enlightenment? Because I don't know what that means. Um, the answer is I hope so. That's why I do this. Because it's trying to say, um, it's sort of like a whistleblower, okay? I'm trying to blow the whistle on it and say, <laughs> if this is it, are there other ways of doing it? Now, that also brings into play the issue of change. What do I mean and what is embodied in this way of thinking about change? There's a very strong literature which I'm interested both in my work as well. And that is to understand how the way we've thought about change takes the elitism of the enlightenment and poses itself as the guardian and really is, Jacques Rantier uses the language, it really is a hatred of democracy, okay? That notion of change is somehow that I can tell you how you can be enlightened. And then also plan how you're gonna be that kind of person who's enlightened. I'm, I'm reading a lot of the uh, teacher education research now. And what are, they talking, what are they talking about? They're talking about, we need to create a professional teacher. What does that mean? Well, you have to have certain skills and knowledge, but it means more than that. We know the researcher, what the dispositions, what the sensitivities, what the, the um, awarenesses of the teacher should be. And we have to plan the school and plan teacher education so the teacher can be that. That's an arrogance that I really find very difficult. And that maybe relates back to what Rancière is talking about. Um, and so for me, the problem of change is to leave that model of what he talks about, a hierarchy between those who know and those who are supposed to learn what you know. And, and the denaturalizing I talked about before is a way, for me at least, to think about change. If you begin to understand the limits of the present, if you begin to poke holes in this sense of causality, you then create options outside of what already there and possibilities other than those that are present in the contemporary way of organizing things. That's a notion of change. There's no um, guarantee, if I use Stuart Hall's very famous essay on that, there's no guarantee to it, but that's okay. We're supposed to be living with uncertainty, so we have to learn how to live with it, but in a way that's profitable. There's another element, by the way, I didn't mention earlier. One of the things about these models that come out of um, the Enlightenment, the ones that we're talking about, not, um, not the Enlightenment for everyone, but the particular ones that I'm talking about, 
is that you have a notion of certainty which you put in and think of as uncertainty. What do statistics do? Statistics is a way of taming chance. Numbers are a way of taming chance. That's a notion of certainty. If you think about the models of curriculum, they're built upon notions of certainty. Right now, one of the major movements in science and math is have kids model. What does model mean? Model means you have a model that kids have to learn how to access reality. That's a notion of certainty. And I'm trying to counter that notion of change. And it seems to me to historicize what I earlier said, to think about the present and the conditions of it as something that's historically there, that is produced by a whole range of different things, is a way to challenge that presence in a way that allows you to say, look, there are some things maybe I want to keep, but there are other things I know are not working the way I think. How do we find other ones? And so embedded in this is a notion of change. And I, I, to me, that's very important to, to sort of recognize. Well, Tom Popkovitz, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Tom Popkovitz is a professor in the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's currently writing a book tentatively entitled The Impracticality of Practical Research. Next week, I start a seven-part mini-series on global learning metrics. My first guest is Eric Hanushek, who discusses education quality, skills, and economic growth. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed contributors include Rolf Straubhar, Eric Lehman, Dee Brent Edwards Jr., Chrissy Monahan, and Aaron Baxter. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Please be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brent, and I'll see you next week.